first Sunday night of the, each month, we spend dealing with some questions and answers. And the passage that Brother Mike read to us just a few moments ago made me think of the fact it would be very easy to give a quick answer to what sometimes seems to be a very easy question. And however, as a person looks at a question sometimes more, you realize you need to be giving a well-thought-out answer to what are really serious questions. And so we will look at questions tonight. I will again categorize them for you. We talk about their questions that are textual, some that are topical, and then there's some that are practical. And I would categorize these two tonight at least the way they were asked of me in being in the category of being practical. The first question that we want to address is one that was asked to me directly rather than being written on a card. And the question was, why do we need to go to worship? With the idea in mind is, do we need to go to worship? Well, as we begin to understand the answer, I point out to you that the word worship in all of its forms is found 186 times in the Bible. That word conveys a lot as it talks about a man's devotion to the Lord. And it is true that we do, as the question asks, go to worship. And the reason why I bring that up is because there are some people who have the idea today that everything that a Christian might do is worship. And that's just not the case. It is important to have the right attitude, but worship is an intentional act. It's something that you and I choose to do. In the book of Genesis, chapter 22, and verse 5, you'll remember when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, his son. And after that, you'll notice that it says, Abraham said to his young men, Stay with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. It was an intentional act. It was a place to which they were going to offer their devotion to God. If you define the word, worship is an act expressed toward God, the object of which is to glorify, adore, and extol It's when you put God up in a position of being special and you adore Him. As the songs that we have sung tonight, we adore God, we love Him, and we express our respect and reverence for Him. I will acknowledge that as you look through the Bible that sometimes worship is not just offered to God. Sometimes it's offered to God's, the little g, idols. Sometimes it's offered to a man or an angel. Sometimes it is even offered to the sun, moon, and stars. In Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 6 is a wonderful passage. It says, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen. While lifting up their hands, they bowed and their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You see, these people were expressing an act of devotion to God and appreciation for who God was and what He had done. But when I go to Revelation chapter 22 and look at verses 8 and 9, I see John standing before the angel who revealed the things to him. And he says, I fell down to worship 
before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Now, obviously, what he was doing was not right. No man, no angelic being is worthy of worship. And the angel replies, See that you do not do that, for I am a fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. But then you can go a little bit further and you can read a very sad incident in the life of the children of Israel. How that when they Moses descended from Mount Sinai and found the children of Israel there bowing down and as the text said, they had made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it. You see, worship is an act of adoration, of extolling. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 19, God understands what the children of Israel will do once they get back to the promised land. And he says to them there, he says, And take heed, lest you lift up your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them. You see, some people would even worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. So worship is, in reality, what you and I do is we give glory and honor to God, which leads me into this next idea, and that is worship is ultimately about God and not about me, the worshiper, or you, the worshiper. Here's a phrase that I have heard myself said by folks. They say, I didn't get anything out of worship. Let me tell you how that sounds when I hear that. I hope you're listening. Someone says, I was invited to my cousin's birthday party and they didn't give me any birthday gifts. And you say, well, it wasn't your birthday. It wasn't yours to enjoy. It was about them. It wasn't about you. And the truth is, when you and I come here to worship, it's not about me and it's not about you. It's about God and the adoration which you and I give Him. Why should I go to worship? You don't come here to socialize, even though you do socialize. You don't come here to have someone to tell you you're great and you're wonderful. You come here to give God the glory. And if you're not giving Him the glory, then you're missing the important part of it. But then as the question was addressed to me, why can't I do this privately? Why assemble? Why come together as a group? Well, I think the answer is because that's what God wants. You know, occasionally in our family, people will come along and say, what do you want to do for your birthday? Sometimes people say, well, i tell you what I want to do for my birthday. I want to go out and have fun uh, at some sporting event. Someone may say, I want to go on a vacation. Maybe I want to go to the beach or somewhere like that. Someone may say, I want to go out and eat at a good restaurant. When you ask the question, what does God want in worship? He wants an assembly. He wants a group of people coming together. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. If it was 
just a matter of option. He wouldn't use the word forsaking. In Hebrews, or excuse me, Acts 11 and verse 26, talking about Barnabas, and when he had found him, Saul, that is, he brought him to Antioch. And so that was for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. That's really what God wants. In Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, as Luke gives us a great picture of what happened right after the establishment of the church, he said they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. He goes on to say that fear came on every soul, and as many as uh, wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together. And had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and divided as anyone had need. So continuing daily in one accord and the temple and breaking of bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God. Now don't skip that part of that verse. Having favor with all the people and the Lord added the church daily, those who were being saved. There's a picture of a church coming together and assembling and preaching and teaching and praying and giving and partaking of the Lord's Supper. When you do that, God knows that there is some mutual encouragement comes from it because part of God's delight is in seeing those people who are weak made strong, seeing those people who are there to adore Him Get encouraged. That's the reason why Hebrews 10, 24 says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up or to provoke love and good works. Ecclesiastes talks about two is better than one. And then he talks about uh, how can one be warm being alone. And he says, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. God knows that when you and I come together and we offer him worship, we offer him devotion, then doing so together makes us all love him and serve him better. That's why we go to worship. Second question. What is meant by the word nakedness in the Old Testament? How does this relate to modesty? It's real interesting. I'm going to be a little technical here for just a moment if you don't, if you'll just spare me a little bit of time here. This is from the complete word dictionary of the Old Testament. And it says the Hebrew word erwa means a feminine noun expressing nakedness. The word can pertain to physical nakedness of either a man or a woman and cited Genesis 9, 22 and 23 and Exodus 20, verse 26. However, it is more often used in the figurative sense when used with the words galah meaning to uncover or to remove and ra'ah meaning to see one finds a common euphemism for sexual relations. In other words, it's a word that you put to make it sound a little better for the kind of sexual relations between a man and a woman. To uncover one's nakedness, cited as Leviticus 18, verse 6, and chapter 20, verse 17. 
On the other hand, when one finds a combination of the verb kasa, meaning to cover, one finds a common idiom for the marriage contract. So what you have is the word nakedness, and depending on some of these words that you add with it, and so for just a few minutes, let's explore this. I will tell you that the Bible is very clear that when one exposes their genitals, their private parts, if you will, that they are naked. In fact, one of the best ways to understand this is to understand what God had planned for the priest. The priest would go up upon the altar and when they would ascend above the audience, because the kind of clothing they wore was something similar to what we would say a cut-off robe, God made a plan that they wore a certain garment to cover their nakedness. Listen to Exodus 28, verses 40 through 42. For Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them, and you shall make hats for them for glory and for beauty. So you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, sanctify them that they may minister to me as priests. Now listen to verse 42. And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. You see, God knew that there would be an exposure there, and so he says, I want them to have the linen trousers, or we would say underwear. Exodus 20, verse 26 says, Nor you shall go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness not be exposed on it. So when a person exposes their privates, then they are naked. I will tell you that as you go throughout the Old Testament, you will find that the word nakedness is reserved for marriage. In fact, Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it says... And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. That's the way God intended it. When you go to Leviticus chapter 18, and I recognize this is a long reading here, and I'm just going to make reference to some of it. None of you shall approach anyone his near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. And so he begins to explain what that would involve. He says, the nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. If you go a little bit further, he says in verse 8, the nakedness of your father's wife, contemplating perhaps maybe a remarriage. The nakedness of your sister, verse 9, the daughter of your father or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. Verse 10, the nakedness of your son's daughter, your daughter's daughter. Uh, Verse 11, the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter. She's your sister. Uh, Verse 12, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. That would be your aunt. She's near of kin to your father. You shall not uncover the the nakedness of your mother's sister. She also is near of kin. And you start seeing, he goes on through and he talks about each of these. Because these are situations where you have no business observing their private parts. You see, because of this, there is implied within this an uncovering, a looking at, and participating in something which was sinful and was wrong. When you get to chapter 16, verse 28, of, or verse 8 of Ezekiel, 
there's a picture there of a marriage and the covering. He says, when I passed by you again, I looked upon you. Indeed, your time was a time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you. So you see that the nakedness there belongs within marriage. And Hebrews 13 verse 4 said, Let marriage be honorable in all, but let the bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Otherwise, should a person expose themselves like this, they should be ashamed. There's a picture in the book of Nahum that is given with what God was going to do to Israel. And he says, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will lift your skirt over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. Just like a godly woman would not want to have her dress lifted up and exposed before others, neither would anyone want to expose their nakedness without it becoming a shame to them. When John was writing for Jesus and writing to the seven churches, he said to the church at Laodicea, I counsel you to buy me gold refined by fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness not be revealed. You see, in all of this, the way to not display yourself is to be properly clothed. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, after he'd said, I want the men to pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. He says, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness through good works. What does the Old Testament say about nakedness? It says that it is the private part reserved only for marriage and anybody who exposes it otherwise should be ashamed of themselves. In the New Testament, how does this relate to uh, modesty? Modesty is clothing which covers that which would make us immodest. And so godly people make sure that they do not expose or display themselves. That brings us to the end. God is seeking a people, a godly people who want to worship him. Just like you and I come together, we come here with, with a thought in mind. When I sing these songs, when I open God's word, when I pray these prayers, my focus is on giving God the glory. And those who come before him need to be those of a pure heart, reflecting people modest not only in word but in deed and life and you can choose to serve God tonight if you want to become a New Testament Christian the Bible teaches for a person to believe that Jesus is the Christ repent of their sins confess their faith and be baptized for the remission of their sins and I'm sure that in our audience tonight we have somebody who surely needs to do that and I know that maybe you didn't come with the idea in mind that I'm going to do that tonight, but as we sing the songs and as we give God the glory, you say, that's what I need to do as well. If you'll come to the front up here, we'll assist you in becoming a Christian. 
And if you're a child of God, we had two precious souls this morning who said they wanted to be restored. We'd love tonight that if there's someone else in need, be able to pray with you and for you. Would you come while together we stand and sing?